Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doe Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout, who will discuss the origins of infant parent psychotherapy. Michael Trout founded the Infant Parent Institute, a private clinical practice, consultation, and training facility dedicated to understanding the relationship between early social experiences and how our lives form. Now retired, Mr. Trout remains active as an author and regular speaker on early development and problems of attachment. This episode is the first in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. Be sure to tune in over the following weeks for more from Michael Trout. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am pleased to kick off this series today with Michael Trout, uh, who is here with me today. So welcome, Michael. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, so, you know, the way we are uh, starting this out is a look back at the early start of before we even called it infant parent psychotherapy, um, but that I know you studied with Selma Freiberg. If you could share a little bit how you got involved with all of that to get the conversation going, and then we'll continue talking about those early years and how things started to evolve into an actual, maybe more organized way of thinking of working with mothers and their babies. Well, I, w- I wish there were a a shiny story about how I got involved with Freiburg, preferably one that involved her seeing my brilliance on the horizon and pulling me in, but that's not how it happened at all. I was uh, very young and very stupid, and uh, a new um, therapist on the staff of a four-county community mental health center in northern Michigan when an invitation went out to uh, allow some people to sort of try out for the first class of folks that Freiburg had said that she might be willing, more or less against her will, I think, to train. Uh, she did this because a woman named Betty Tableman, who was her director of the Department of Prevention in the Michigan Department of Mental Health at the time, uh, pulled on her, uh, begged, cajoled, and Betty Tableman is a very uh, convincing person and eventually Freiburg, as, as we heard it anyway, capitulated uh, on the condition that the first class of six people would be sophisticated, if not seasoned, clinicians. Uh, but instead, she got me and <laughs> uh, others, as it turned out. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that anyone ever uh, knew the difference, except each of us who felt always inadequate in her presence and always inadequate at the foot of this what was then brand new idea that there's something you could do while sitting in a kitchen or a living room with a mom or a dad and a baby that would actually change the course of development and change the nature and quality of the attachment with the child. Yes, and and how did Betty know about Selma's work? Why was she so persistent in asking Selma to work with others? And why did, do you know why she felt this was so important? 
I think uh, a good deal of it probably has to be chalked up to Betty's always incredible intuition. Uh, but she wasn't ignorant of Selma's name in the field. Uh, Selma had been a young uh, social worker in uh, New Orleans working with blind babies, having been trained originally in Detroit. And uh, word was getting out about her rather peculiar way of dealing with the uh, attachment issues that arose. We didn't use that language then, by the way. Oh. Attachment issues. But the stuff that arose between mothers and babies when the babies could not see. And uh, there were a number of articles and then a book, finally, Insights from the Blind. And that had come out before Selma ever moved to Ann Arbor. So she was known. She was by then a child psychoanalyst, uh, having been trained originally, of course, as a clinical social worker. And so Betty knew of her. Uh, Selma had quite a lot of funding from uh, the Grant Foundation in Ann Arbor. So there was an official uh, and elaborate uh, research project designed to carry the blind infant research uh, uh, findings into a broader look at children of, with various kinds of early disabilities, but also things that were not identified as disabilities, just concerns that mothers and fathers would bring. He, he doesn't act right. He doesn't smile at me. He, he never looks at me. Uh, things that were familiar from the blind baby research, but which were now being thought of in a broader perspective. So Betty had heard of her, went to Ann Arbor, and began her cajoling. Wow. Yeah. And so fascinating that she started with blind children. Yeah. yeah. And nobody knew, of course, that there was anything to learn from blind children. We had zero, well, virtually zero literature about blind children and even development, much less blind children and attachment. Mm -hmm. First, uh, without any preconceptions, actually, uh, went into homes where she could do naturalistic observations of blind babies and their mothers. And there began to discover not only the, the grief of the mothers, often unresolved, um, about the losses none of which had ever been mentioned in the literature particularly, that there would be losses accruing to the mother when a baby was born with, and frankly, any severe disability, much less blindness. Mm -hmm. I began to notice that in the behavior of the mother, greeting behavior of the blind child, for example. And she began to compare that to greeting behavior of children who were not blind with their mothers, babies and their mothers and notice such profound differences. Notice differences in mother affect and mother stories about how the birth had gone, about the screaming of the baby, about the mother's sense that the baby must surely uh, dislike her, if not hate her. And that's why the baby always tightened and screamed when she would, according to the mother's report, when she would pick him up or put him down or do anything with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm that mothers were reporting and demonstrating on these home visits less actual proximity, less touching, but less proximal behavior in general. Um, Freiburg was trained to know about, to understand, but we didn't really have a format at the time, a, a way of understanding what that would mean over the long haul. 
that a mother was just simply not comfortable with her child. Mm -hmm. So that it helped greatly that Freiburg brought not only analytic history, but some understanding of babies to bear on her just watching, which is the thing she did with more brilliance than anyone ever had. She knew how to go into a home and be quiet and watch and not ask inane questions, uh, but ask very uh, penetrating, quiet questions. What's it like when you go to the crib and you look down at him? What do you see? That kind of question. Wow. It sounds so um, different than, than a lot of what we're doing today. You know, I'm thinking about when you said she went in without any, she had training, um, but she also went into these situations without preconceived notions. And sometimes that seems so absent today. And, you know, I heard um, probably one of the last lectures that Jak Pankstep gave before he died. And he was talking about the days of true science when no one had an agenda who was funding you. They were funding you to just go in there and discover. And that's what this reminds me of that, you know, you said that the funding was there to continue this for her to just keep going forward in this way. And see what it would mean for others. Yes. Really without any particular idea that it would mean anything particularly and without uh -huh. a model to push. By the time Freiburg came to Ann Arbor, she did not have a model, an infant mental health model. She didn't call it that, uh, and she didn't have it. She just walked into homes to see what she could learn, she and her uh, colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. So many would be familiar with the seminal article, Ghosts in the Nursery. When did that come about? Do you know? It was actually published in 75, worked on, of course, for two or three years before that. And our first class entered the project in 73. So we were there as that was being written. Oh, how amazing. Wow. So. And as I was waiting for my first son to be born. Oh, yeah. Wow. So very exciting. But maybe you didn't know at the time what an exciting time it was in your life, um, you know, perhaps for your first son, but maybe you didn't know professionally what, what was in front of you was this big groundbreaking um, way of doing things that she was going to be sharing. I sure didn't. Mostly I knew that it was a very long drive from Northern Michigan to Ann Arbor, <laughs> classes and supervision and that I could not stop looking. Everything that was put in front of us just was compelling to me. It captivated you. I, I, I laughed uh, recently when I went to my shelves and found the, one of the first copies of, um, uh, oh my goodness, someone's first book for lay people. Mm -hmm. Why am I blocking on the title? Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Okay, I'm sorry, I can't help. <laughs> and I, I saw the charred cover. 
it was a paperback Scribner's and it was burned and I'd forgotten all about that. And it, uh, it reminded me that it happened when my uh, wife, uh, probably detecting how much I was absolutely preoccupied with this goofy lady and that I was going to see all the time uh, and, and all of her uh, others. And so taken with the book um, and she set it on the fireplace and it got accidentally burned. And I've always thought that was just a fascinating, doesn't speak ill of, of my wife at all, but does say, boy, something has happened to you and you're kind of taken away. You're preoccupied. Mm -hmm. She was right. I was. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think it's so interesting how many times um, people don't really realize what's unfolding in front of them. I'm reminded of Mary Main saying that she wanted to study linguistics. She didn't have high enough grades, so she got stuck in this lab early childhood lab which was second best because at least children learn to talk and it's something about language and she got stuck in this lab with Mary Ainsworth. <laughs> <laughs> what a burden. I know. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just kind of reminded me similar you know so so okay so so she's convinced to start these classes she has this group of students and <laughs> What does she start teaching you? Like what, what you're driving this long drive for the supervision and, and whatever, I, I guess you would call it training, even though it wasn't necessarily a model. What, what was going on? It's interesting that you put it that way because the truth is she never did issue a curriculum. She never did tell us what we were going to learn. She never even particularly implied that there would be anything specific to learn we would simply come together and sit and we would look at film and we would consider theory, but we would not really study theory. I mean, it was up to us to, to fill in the blanks about psychoanalytic theory, for example, much less child development theory. Um, instead, she insisted that we would have to take a case, but it would be a, what she would call a normal case, uh, mother and baby, who would allow us to come into their homes for a year or two, who were having no trouble whatsoever. And our job was to take extensive notes and write them uh, at great length. She insisted that we spend the same amount of time writing the notes for submission as we spent sitting in the home in the first place. So um, that was her way of saying, we're not gonna talk about pathology right away. You're not gonna try to get all excited about pathology. We're gonna think about babies and what they do with their mothers. And you're gonna, you're gonna tell us about it. And then we're gonna consider it together in supervision. And what we won't tell you is that we'll be watching you very carefully uh, through your notes and we'll be asking you an awful lot of questions. And in the process, um, something will emerge. Mm. So it wasn't uh, like she handed out a syllabus and you had certain readings and then you had an exam. Um, it wasn't anything like that. In fact, I remember getting there early so I could walk around the library. We met in her library. And so I could walk around and see, had anybody else ever written anything? We had no idea. We had no assigned readings or anything. And I stumbled across um, 
uh, Ainsworth's infancy in Uganda. And I thought, oh my goodness, somebody has thought about babies before us. Um, but still, there was, we had to take care of that ourselves. We had to figure out what needed to be read and to read it. Which, by the way, I continue to think is the very best way in the world, not only to be a student, but to learn. Yes. Wow. Driven by your own hunger to know. Yes. Um, and so I'm also thinking about um, her emphasis on looking at um, normal, quote, normal mothers and babies first. Because it, it seems that sometimes um, we don't understand that well enough. Sometimes we pathologize things that are not even unusual, don't we? Yes, and it was a bit of a controversy when um, my first case got all mucked up. And, and there, was con there was confusion about whether I was unable to meet the requirements of having a normal family because I brought one that seemed to be not normal. She was, she was referred to me by a public health nurse, um, but she, the public health nurse knew exactly what was required. Just, I wanted to study normal development. Um, and so she gave me a case that I guess she presumed would be that, but it was anything but that. And so the question was, can trout not recognize normal when he sees it, or is not making this a pathology case when it shouldn't have been. But eventually it was uh, understood that this family needed a great deal of help and they became my first treatment case as well. Okay, and so how old were most of the, the babies approximately? Uh, these, these first of mine were twins. They were, had been premature. And at the time I got into the home, they were just under a year old. Okay. I'm in an NICU and had lived part of that first year not together and then were reunited at the time I came into the home at about one year. Okay. And so this was your, your first case in the group of students. Yeah. Yeah. It was unbelievably compelling, but everybody's case was. It wasn't just me, everybody's, what, what we were discovering in, in what the so-called normal homes and in the treatment homes were all um, dynamics that we just found irresistible. Do you recall all these years later what some of those discussions were about? Uh, sure, I mean, some of them were uh, evoked by films, by the way, that the project people were also taking at the same time. Uh, so we were all uh, eager to bring film of some kind to class. So we had something to show, but sometimes what we would show was just the most, um, what would be for normal people, like not like us, uh, mundane interactions. But we would take them apart, again, not searching for pathology, just searching for understanding. Uh, why does the mother look away right at that moment? Why does the baby seem to take a break every three to five seconds and avert gaze? Uh, what does it mean that the baby grabs in just this way? Um, I remember 
they brought one of the uh, blind babies, film was one of the blind babies to class one time, the staff did. And the father was, um, I don't I don't know if he was first changing the diaper, but he was uh, messing around the diaper area of a very tiny blind baby, maybe four or five months of age, something like that. And the father began uh, sort of tickling and then sort of not more than tickling, sort of being a little rough. And it seemed to focus first on the midsection and then move down around the genitals, although the baby still had a diaper on. And within 30 seconds, the father was pushing against the genitals, and then he began to strike the baby in the genitals. And we were all just astounded and watching this. The staff had not seen it yet either. They had just taken it. And um, we began to, uh, to use the word I use now all the time, then was just a lay word, wonder. We were, we were astounded, but want, trying to keep ourselves calm in wondering about the meaning of pushing and, and punching and then striking a male offspring who was blind by a father. Um, Freiburg had written right about that time, if I recall correctly, an article called The Clinical Dimensions of Baby Games, wherein she uh, purported that many of the kinds of uh, fun interactions, playful interactions between mothers and fathers and babies can uh, turn into something meaningful, can display meaningful affect and meaningful interpretation on the part of the parent. And so that played a part. I had not read that article at the time, but it uh -huh. certainly those ideas played a part in our discussion where we began to wonder, uh, is this dad suffering mightily? Is he assaulting the masculinity of this offspring whom he fears will never be a masculine, will always be emasculated due to his blindness? Will mm -hmm. he never be a boy? Will he never be my boy? Will he never be a man? And all of that was just um, surmise. It was nothing more than just surmise for the sake of considering. But no one said, oh, we think this father is going to hurt this baby. Let's go take the baby away. Boy, that's a very clever thought on your part. I hadn't thought about that. No, no one did that. And of course, in those days, had we, and we did in other cases, the the nature of child welfare at the time and the nature of us, I guess, and our relationship with child welfare is that the child welfare worker would not have said, I'll be in there and get him out of there by this afternoon, but rather, oh my, can we talk about it? And if it's a risk, high risk situation, would you, the workers, child welfare workers speaking to we clinicians, would you partner with me in looking after this baby and this family for a while so that we don't have to remove. Because any bozo knows that removal is a very bad thing. Mm -hmm. So is child abuse, but removal is also a very bad thing. And we mm -hmm. would have worked warmly and carefully together. But no, that didn't come up in this case or in many of the cases. Mm -hmm. Understanding seems so, um, I don't want to overblow this, but seems so readily available to us. We could look and see and begin to understand with such ease 
that the, the horror of whatever we were looking at was not the primary thing. It wasn't that we would jump back in, in horror and say, oh, that behavior has got to be stopped, but rather we would step back in wonder and say, that behavior is fascinating. I wonder what it means, and I wonder what might happen if I asked about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The mom that I was seeing, the one I just mentioned that was supposed to be a normal case, used to invite the twins while in their playpen to crawl over to the edge of the playpen. She would get down on her knees on the outside of the playpen and very gently and and calmly move over so that they were within inches of each other, twins on the inside and she on the outside. Whereupon she would shout at them, get! And they would reel back and scream and cry. It was an awful thing to see. But again, nobody thought this mother should be hung by her toes, but rather, goodness sakes, what is happening here that we need to understand? And, and is, there some, is there something we could do? I want to soft pedal that verb do, because we didn't know what, anything to do. We didn't have a strategy, but is there something we could do if we were just there and could ask her? about that and of course i was there that's how i know what happened and i did ask her about it it sounds and feels like um a much more non-judgmental approach Mm -hmm. than perhaps what we might be engaging in today in child welfare oh non-judgmental for child welfare you mean or for us as well I think both, but so when you ask her, I have to hear, what did she say when you asked her why she was doing that? No, don't imagine that, that I was about to lead up to, and she sat back and stroked her chin and said, well, (laughs) let me tell you all about it. It rarely worked that way. Yes. But what often would happen is that the mom would tell a story. And mm. the story made sense immediately, and sometimes it made no sense with respect to what she had just done. No sense whatsoever. But she might tell a story that if we were extremely lucky and had extremely good supervisors, which we did, uh, the likes of Vivian Shapiro and Bill Schaefer and so on, Peter Bloss, um, then we might understand how the story linked up to the behavior of yelling and get at the boys. So you would you would go and you would make these films of these interactions and think about them and study them and then you would bring them to your group for supervision and consultation. Yes. And we would all sit gap slack jawed looking at each other's stuff. I remember hearing once too that um, in those um, times that you were meant to have, you, you know, you mentioned you, you were supposed to be writing your observations for as long as you were observing, but it wasn't it that you were also to have supervision for every hour with the family, one hour of supervision? Was it? That was what was planned and hoped for, but some yeah. of us lived very far away. I was four hours away, and one of the students 
was in the Upper Peninsula, so she was eight hours away from Ann Arbor. Wow. Supervision had to occur by phone then, although that was not a common phenomenon as it is today. It wasn't, just wasn't done. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it would just have to wait. So we might have two or even, well, usually not more than two sessions before we can have supervision. All right, well, I wanna take a break here um, before we move on um, to part two of this discussion where I wanna talk about two things. You know, one, um, you know, how did an intervention sort of start to emerge if it did? And what do you think we today could learn from those experiences that you're sharing? Because I think it clearly every listener is going to think there's some real differences in how we're approaching this today and things were approached back then. So that's what I want to talk about in our next chat. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is the first in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. Be sure to subscribe and tune in over the following weeks for more from Michael Trout. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory. Do you like what Karen and Michael are talking about? Do you want to learn more and explore his books? We have an exclusive discount code for our podcast listeners. Go to the TKC store at tkcchaddock.org and apply the code TROUT20 for 20% off any item in the Michael Trout collection. That's discount code TROUT20, T-R-O-U-T, 20, to get 20% off any item in the Michael Trout collection in the TKC store at tkcchaddock.org.